0: Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I will be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and, of course, leave a review. Welcome to this week's episode of One For The Road. And I instantly feel compelled to issue a trigger warning as my wonderful guest Lucy Norfolk shares something that some of you may find extremely upsetting. Quite often we hear about all the benefits of giving up alcohol, but we rarely hear about how extreme alcohol use disorder can literally destroy the lives of families and loved ones. I am so proud of Lucy for being brave enough to record this episode, and I know she is so passionate to share her story in the hope it will help others to see the devastating effects that alcohol can cause. If this podcast has affected you in any way, I've included some links for support in the show notes. Please try and give it a listen as it took a lot of courage for Lucy to record it. Thank you. So, hello, Lucy. Welcome to my show, One for the Road. And I'm truly grateful you've um, agreed to join me today. Thank you so much. And it's a slightly different episode today, but one I feel is really important for the listeners to hear. And. I thought we would start with a, a short brief of who you are, what it's like for you growing up, and how you met your husband, Dan, before we progress with a story.
1: Yep. Hello. Hello. Um, thank you. So, I, as I was growing up, I was quite a shy child, and I then joined the theatre because I I really enjoyed amateur dramatics. I could be a different person. So that was good. Um, and then I had a quite normal childhood, really, till mum and dad broke up when I was 11. And then I, my mum remarried somebody else who had two children. We moved in with them. Then my grandma had a lot to do with us. So I lived with my grandma for a bit, moved around, travelled to Spain and London and stuff. I went to music school in London and then... My cousin died in a car accident in 2008, and that my whole world changed. And that's when I met Daniel.
0: How, how did you meet Dan when that tragedy happened?
1: I joined a theatre. I left. I decided to do what I wanted to do because I thought, well, maybe life's too short. And yeah. so I went to London, joined, and this theatre group. And Dan was the main one of the main actors in the theatre and I met him backstage I was singing at the time so I wasn't acting but um yeah I met him backstage at this I he was very funny and he he literally everyone loved him and they found him really like I thought he was kind and caring and I thought that he was perfect and that he and he was just fun and we um started going out started he uh, wanted to go out a lot (laughs) so we went out and also after the shows and he was a stand-up comedian as well so he did lots of he'd do stand-up and then everyone would buy him drinks after work loads of beers and loads of uh, it was kind of normal i guess that's where we just
0: Mm. Was it love at first sight?
1: <laughs> for me, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, I imagine for him as well. And, you know, like, if you had had that terrible trauma in your life as well with your cousin and you went to London, it was probably quite scary for you to start again. So to meet someone that could make you laugh maybe and entertain everyone and everyone liked him, It's it helps, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: So you started going out of him and it was it official then that you were?
1: Well, yeah, I thought it was. Um, and then I'd say probably I realized he, he would like to have a drink and like to drink beers and he'd be uh, just, and it wasn't really an issue, but I did. I remember bringing it up and saying, are you only seeing me or are you wanting me to go and buy you a bottle of wine? <laughs> like, and, no, I want to see you. Um, and then, then he he was struggling because he was living in he was living in a flat, but he needed to move out of the flat, so he moved into his mum's house. And it was such a whirlwind of like the minute we met to literally moving in together so quickly. And it was a bit looking back that I just wouldn't do that now, but at the time I was like, right, let's. I des- I loved him. I really wanted him to. Um, be with me and yeah. he had a lot of girls were wanting that at the time he was he couldn't choose between girlfriend there were so many people in this theater that were all like oh uh, and so I, it was almost like I was fighting for him to be with him and he'd never had a long-term relationship he'd never so we I, was trying, I think I was 26 years old so he was about yeah, 20 he was 27 so then he um he came to my grandma's because I was living at my grandma's back then and he ended up moving in with me my grandma um just for a little bit then then he he went a bit out of control he ended (laughs) he was drinking a lot of wine a lot of beer a lot and then my um my family started to say to me uh he's basically he's putting you down and things like that he wasn't but it was when he was getting drunk and so we'd go out he'd be horrible and then we'd come back and then he said oh, he didn't remember that that sorry like and um and then he so my family pretty much kicked him out said you can't live here then so there was two weeks where I I, I left him when I found out that I was just like, fine I can't be with him I can't but I was desperate to be with him and so I, I went he begged me to go and meet him and have a meal out and he bought me a meal and he was lovely and funny and everything. And then I remember standing in my grandma's kitchen with him and he apologized to my whole family and said, I'm so sorry. It, I do want to be with Lucy. I didn't mean to treat her like that. I didn't mean to, um, put any pressure on her. And, and, uh, so my family forgave him and they said, oh, that's fine, but you need to sort yourself out, make sure that you can like maybe go because he was working in London but he was kind of he was in between teaching he was starting to learn to be a teacher and he said that he would give up everything in London and come and live in Ipswich come live near there and he was going to get a job because by this point so it was a year in and I'd got pregnant with our first child and so we he came to Ipswich he said all right I'm gonna get he got a job as a teacher and everything was okay for a little while it was he he was like I've sorted myself out this is what's happening I'm I'm fine he they didn't have I suppose the alcoholism was there but it wasn't actually recognized as he's an alcoholic none of us said he was alcoholic just he was drinking too much and being a bit of an arse when he was drinking like that was what what it came down to it wasn't we said he was alcoholic but so
0: when he came back to ipswich were you still living at your grands? end?
1: yeah he moved in yeah so
0: he, in a way he probably felt well you know i need to sort myself out because they've seen me for who i am mm-hmm. uh, and he couldn't get away with it anymore and then you were pregnant as well so he thought well i've got added responsibility here so i I do actually need to get my act together with my drinking so generally there's normally a period of getting the act together and then it starts to slip back doesn't it did that happen
1: yeah we got a flat that you won't allow children in and we rented it for six months and um and i was still working for the family business i'd had to stop the acting because i was going to london at that point i had to stop doing that and put everything on hold and go okay I'll just I just need to work and, and he needs to do that and it was like let's get proper jobs and not be doing all of the fun stuff that we wanted to do but so he did that and I did that then in the flat there was a couple of occasions where he while I was pregnant, he'd say, I'll just, I'll run you a bath and I put candles all around the bath and he'd make me a lovely, amazing dinner. And then I'd go in the bath and what he was actually doing while I was in the bath, he would be downing whatever, like a beer or like a few beers or a bottle of wine and he'd hide it behind the chair. And then when I confronted him about that, on one, he absolutely lost it with me and and a bit crazy and start shouting and saying that I was wrong and that he's not, he's just having a drink after work. He's been working like a long day and he'd be like, Well, what have you done today? You don't have the responsibility I have, you know. So um there was a point where it was just so stressful. Then we had to move out of the flat because the six months was up and you weren't allowed children there. So we moved again, and we thought that would be a fresh start. He'd move nearer work because I was driving him in each day. I wouldn't have to drive him; he could walk. So we moved, and I had Isaac and baby um, about well two weeks later. So we um, we'd literally moved in, had this baby, and like, and he was he was really like absolutely loved our son Isaac. He was very very much absolutely. A brilliant father with him and he was very caring and almost like he felt responsible he had to show that he was a good dad and he had to be the one that was doing everything he would cook all like cook us food that was healthy and try and but he was he had to have like control of everything in a way like right I'm gonna I'm gonna be the best dad I'm going to I have to be seen to be okay i suppose what he was trying to do but um he'd up and down drink i'd find alcohol and i was like you need to sort this out so that was i think i'd got i got pregnant again uh when isaac was nine months old and that was quite a shock for some reason (laughs) i we then had another child coming on the way and and he was he was up and down drinking. wasn't He hadn't started drinking vodka. He start, He was drinking the wine and everything. And then I said to him, "You need to." You basically. I, he said, "I said I think you have got an issue with alcohol because you can't not drink." And he said, "Well, he said I'm not drinking." Like I, know, so I said, the problem is it's costing us a fortune. It literally is costing like all your wages going on alcohol so
0: was it every day
1: yeah at that point but it was like i suppose it was just wine and and beer but it was too many of them in a way and that cost more so buying like a four pack of beer and a bottle of wine or something would cost more than buying a 10 pound bottle of vodka and at the time i think it was eight pound 50 to buy a bottle
0: so was that his gateway to vodka then because of the cost so did was that his idea, that he started drinking vodka?
1: Um, he said to me, it's not the alcohol, it's not what it is, it's the content. I can't so
0: not, not the quantity, he made yeah. the content. So, well, because I the, the reason I asked you that is because his sort of journey with alcohol is almost identical to mine. Mm. And, and we let the listeners know that we, we met at an event in Suffolk, didn't we? And I told my story and you were there. Um, and you came up to me after and said, you know, like it's virtually the same as Dan's because I never started on vodka. I started on Foster's and then that were not enough. That, so that went up to Stella uh, and Peroni and that were not enough. So that went up to wine and then I was getting fat and then I went on to vodka and then that's when it completely spoiled. So there's always a process to it, isn't it? So if you were mentioning to him about the money as well, I
1: was about the money, he we both earning, and everything was going out on the rent of the yeah. house and the and well, then we talked about buying somewhere. He didn't want to buy anywhere, but he's he's saying, oh well it's maybe we can save up if i turn to vodka and i had no idea what an alcoholic was really i just i had no idea my grandma and him would sit down and drink together at one point and, and looking back like she drank half a bottle of sherry and a bottle of wine every night and i think mm, and smoked about 20 cigarettes and i think maybe that was an issue for her as well but she didn't it was never seen as that's not an issue but Then, but with Dan, it was. If I could go back in time and go to that one bit, I'd be like, "Stop! Don't drink the vodka!" (laughs) But I just didn't know.
0: No, of course you didn't. And you know, like you, you had enough on your plate as well, right? Because you had a nine-month-old baby. You're pregnant again. You're worried about uh, money, and you're worried about his drinking, and you don't think straight, do you? And when you don't know, how are we meant to know at that particular time? what the right thing is to do it's always in hindsight isn't it and you know and it and it's it's really hard for the partner to know how to support someone who has an issue with drinking because if you haven't yourself and you're being a new mum and that it's so confusing so he he started buying vodka then
1: yeah he started buying it uh from that point and and I actually enabled it in a way I'd buy I'd buy vodka from the shop would go to the shop get our weekly shop and get a bottle of vodka so it wouldn't be like buying a ton of vodka but I and um and then then one day he cut. he broke down and said I need some help I I think I've got a problem with alcohol so okay what do we do so I had no idea I was like right I think we call the doctors. So we did that. We went, uh, got a doctor's appointment. I went with him and he said, well, how much are you drinking? And he said, well, I'm drinking after work each night. And I, can't he said, I think he was having a couple of bottles of vodka a week and wine and a couple of beers. Not, And the doctor said, well, to be honest, you're not actually really, you're not bad enough um, for us to help. We send one person a year to rehab and that won't be you. So, there's nothing we can do really you just um he said if you're drinking loads like just maybe um cut down gradually he didn't didn't actually tell us anything at the time that like if you stop drinking suddenly that you can fit that was he didn't say anything that was actually of any use really so we came away and he was up Dan, he was upset because he was like well what well, what happens and how bad do you have to be? Yeah. We had no idea at that point. Then um we decided we had decided to move house again uh, after we had Emily, had the second child <laughs> and then uh um decided to have a new start again, <laughs> which is like, oh let's move house again and try again to like start again. And I think we got in touch with it, wasn't turning point, but it was somewhere before that. And they turned into turning point. But then I went to Iceni um, and asked for help. I was literally looking for help as much as I possibly could. And then I found that the places gave me help, but they wouldn't give him help because they needed him to come in himself, and he wouldn't. He hadn't done that. And but I was searching for all help, begging everyone for help. I then. I started looking on Facebook. I found Wives of Alcoholics, which definitely helped me. Mm. Um, I ordered books for the children, which is children of alcoholics. And I, I remember Isaac was five and we went through this workbook and I was going through it with him, what what it meant having daddy as an alcoholic. But nobody really knew what was going on outside our family. And, and then... Anyone that I did say anything to, they just go, Oh, we'll just leave him? Like the answer is you just leave him and you take your children and you get away and you don't don't help him, just cut him off. <laughs> like that's what he deserves. So but it wasn't as simple as that. Well,
0: of course it wasn't. You love him and he's the father of your kids and that. And that uh, you know, it's these these statements people make without thought that really annoy me. But for you as well, the frustration of trying to find support by going to the doctors. You know, quite often it's well go and get an appointment. You can't even get an appointment now at the doctors. But, you know, there's no signposting. There's, you know, you have to go on a list for counselling, which is forever long. And in the meantime, the person drinking comes back and say, well, there's no support at me, so I might as well carry on drinking. You're even more frustrated there because there isn't support. No,
1: there's nothing you can do. You can't well i i was like what do we do if i could pay for the priory i would (laughs) if i could i mean that is
0: an absolute fortune isn't it and then
1: i said i can't do that i can't there's nothing i can do other than keep begging for help but the problem is with doing that you can end up with social services on your radar thinking well you you're living with an alcoholic why are you doing that so they come in they came in and they um And and we ended up lying to social services, going no no no, there's absolutely no problem here because they they just wouldn't they weren't listening they weren't listening to me they weren't helping him, and um, so then so we just we got rid of them and then um, we moved to another place and um our son started school it was fine and he and Daniel was working a lot and he was up and now he tried to stop drinking a bit and he would drink um non-alcoholic beers but it clearly wasn't the same so and then he'd hide bottles around and I'd find them and then we'd end up in an argument again because it was just like why and the worst thing was I think was the lying to me that that was the one thing that I found hardest with him was that he was just lying to me and why can't you just be honest with me and and then I can support you more and but then we had this massive argument He was about Isaac had forgotten school he he'd, he'd cooked some food for us, and uh, we sat in the lounge eating this food and he was drinking and he um and he 'd quit work he suddenly he said i can 't do work anymore so i 'm i 'm just not doing it so um he quit and then he he just spiraled right down when he quit work. he was just like did had nothing left, so he 'd go out. And I was um, trying to keep everything together, and in the end, it all it all kind of <laughs> went crashing down. Like, I How us- was
0: that for you at that time when he gave up work and it and it all spoiled out? How was it for you?
1: I just couldn't understand why he would do that, and why he wouldn't call in sick. Even his manager and were ringing him saying, "Why? Why aren't you calling in sick? What? What are you doing? We want you to work here." We want- and um but the thing was, uh social services had got they came in, so we went to the school, they came in, and they were trying to sort him out he'd just got promoted at work, so he was head of department um and everything was hidden until social services came in and said, "Well, you're a teacher, so we're now going to have to tell the school, and we're going to have to but and it caused some major issues there. They decided that they were going to um watch him at work instead. So they put somebody in the classroom with him and he found it all stressful. That's why he had this major meltdown and walked out. And um and he just felt judged. I think that's what it was. It was all around how he felt that he wasn't good enough. He hadn't he failed at everything. Yeah. Um, and then he came back and took took it out of me anyway, he was shouting at me, he'd never hurt me but he would just verbally be quite angry and i i just said i can't do this so um i so say he hid my car keys so i couldn't leave and uh but i left anyway i just i pretty much walked out rang my dad oh one of my neighbors rang him. he came over he picked up me and our children and dad my dad went into our house and he was passed out on the sofa he just like. You know and then, so we left and I carried, I took the children to school for the next three days and cut all contact with him because that was the only thing I could think to do because he was being irrational. And so then, um, then after when I, I went to the school to pick them up, the school then had rang me and said, he's, he's totally, he's completely, well, he's basically rang up and said, can he pick the children up from school? and um, he was going to take him to a dentist appointment he'd even printed off the dentist appointment fake dentist appointment because he wanted to see the children and because I was stopping him seeing the children apparently which I was at that point because he was completely erratic and then so they said to me we can see him walking up and can you ring the police because we're not going to let give the children to him but we don't know what to do and <laughs> So, ringing the police on him was uh, not I didn't want to do it, but I did it, and they went to the school and they picked him up and drove him back to the house and said you can't you can't pick your children up in that state um and then i um I'd given up the contract on the house, and I was actually living at my dad's with the children and and I don't know how I ended up talking to him when I knew that he'd run out of money completely, he couldn't get anything, he was in not a good place. And I went to talk to him. We talked through stuff and I, I just said, you need to, you have, we have to leave the house, basically. You've got to find somewhere. And he didn't. He was like, well, I'm I'm just going to be on the street because he literally didn't take any responsibility. He was just drinking continuously. and um, And it got to the end of our contract and to give the keys back. And he had nowhere to go. And I was I don't know what to do. I, I rang his mum and she, he said "Like he could have gone there, but he wouldn't go back home. And so I'm not going back to my mum. So um, he said, I'll just sleep on the street. And I, was, I just thought, I can't, I can't have him living on the street. I just can't do it. So, And one my family just ended up paying for him to stay in hotels for the next, I think it was about two weeks in hostels and hotels and various places that he could possibly go to. So he'd, and then he was trying to get alcohol wherever he could. And he was ringing up old friends and asking them if they could give him money because he was stuck. And he, he told some people that I'd left him with nothing and he had no food and he was looking after the children at the weekends. That's what he told his friends and he had no money to take them out. So one or two friends would put money in his bank account because they felt sorry for him and had no idea. And, um, and then I, I managed to find, I think it was turning point at that point. I found turning point and they came in and they said, we can house him. So I was so, so relieved and so grateful that they actually just came in and they sorted that out with Genesis housing. And they just literally gave him the house and, so he moved in with uh a load of other people so we, it moved in with a load of other addicts actually <laughs> but um but that was a big point where it actually kind of i think he realized then he really needed to sort himself out and and um so he moved in. there was three addicts and two drug addicts and alcoholics and drug addicts and then and he'd made friends. the only thing was being in that environment they were all they were all buying each other stuff, buying like drinking together and he had a better social life at that point but but he still hid in his room a lot of the time and I moved down the road from him uh, with the children to a rented house for i think six months. I took a contract on there and Um, in that six months social services had come in and they were saying you can't see the children unless you're sober you can't and they had put a lot of restrictions in but mostly towards me saying if you let him into your house then you could have your children taken away from you but they weren't telling him that they were telling me that he's abusive and stuff like that but yet they're going into his house and sitting in his bedroom in a closed room with him and talking to him and it was almost like they were playing us off against each other so I wasn't very happy then. Um, I obviously still loved him, wanted to see him, didn't want it to be like that, but it, it just was like that for a while. Um, and then the one social worker came in, she said, don't, I'll tell you what, you can see your children, but I want you to see them in a, you have to be in a park with like around other people and, you, and you're not allowed to drink anything. And he literally did everything they said, and he turned up at the park. We um, we met up and had children. We were playing fine, and about half an hour in, he said, "I don't feel I don't feel right." He said, "I can see behind me." And I just went what? <laughs> and he flew backwards and literally hit the slide, and started fitting. And he was at the it was the most horrendous thing I've ever seen. Like, I was just terrified because I'd never seen a fit everybody in the park came running over Isaac and Emily were like what's happening with daddy like and he was literally foaming at the mouth and gagging and almost choking and I was terrified and I couldn't even ring I got my phone I couldn't even ring the ambulance because I was shaking so much and then somebody came over they called the ambulance and then we were literally waving him off in an ambulance and I think Isaac and Emily were only like I think there were four and Six at the time, or something like that, and um, they remember it so well. And that's when we found out that if you suddenly stop drinking, you can fit. So <laughs> just did not know, literally, no information through. And I was surprised social services didn't like the social worker didn't know that.
0: Well, I- I'm shocked actually um, to to say he's got to stop just stop drinking so he can see his kids. And obviously, he did because he wanted to, but that's honestly
1: i don't know why i was still amazed that that even happened and i don't know i never put a complaint in but i really wish i had i was so angry afterwards looking back at it all i think how did that even happen but from that so he broke his um hip he shattered all his hip down to his knee and he had to have all that replaced but because he's alcoholic they at the hospital they kind of sorted him out and let him go knowing that he had a broken hip and so he moved straight into mine even though social services were like you can't do this you can't do that but he he wasn't drinking at the time he was on morphine instead because of the pain so he didn't touch any drink for the next three months and he was absolutely but he was in agony and he was taking the morphine and gradually he got worse and worse, he couldn't get up the stairs. So um I and I called an ambulance in the end and said and I rang the doctor, they called the ambulance and said, get a slow ambulance to hospital. And they said we need to replace your hip, but on one condition, you never you never drink again. Um because you've got osteo basically osteopenia, I think it was so just before osteoporosis, but um he'd done so much damage to his bones that the, and I didn't know that could happen either. There were so many things with alcohol that can destroy you from the inside. So he he ended up having the hip replacement. The doctor that he said, "I promise I won't drink again." Dan, he was talking to the doctor. No, I'll never drink again. I'll never do. And so they replaced his hip. They said, "You will need another one in twenty years. You'll need uh, possibly the other side." And and as he came round from the when I went to the hospital, as he was coming around, he was shaking like he was fitting and he wasn't even awake. And I said, what's wrong with him? Why is he fitting? And they said, oh, it's, it, he's um, anxious. I said, but he's unconscious. How is he anxious? And they said, um, he's got inbuilt ans- anxiety, really like severe anxiety. So it's actually, he's, <laughs> his body was just coming out like that. So um, then thus, when he came around from that, he kind of realized that it was there was a lot of stuff that he hadn't faced and he used alcohol to deal with and one of them was very high anxiety and what people thought of him and and everything after that kind of came out we he did drink again unfortunately he relapsed again and um turning point we're trying to help and then i think had another fit um which wasn't as bad but was quite bad and then he had a third fit which was in my car which was the worst one I've ever seen and I, I never want to see that again it was so uh, he turned blue and I had uh, to get the ambulance and they basically said he was having a heart attack that he needed to get they had to get him to the hospital so they quickly whizzed him in and I rang turning point and said what just what do we do what I, what shall I do and they said um that they would help him get to rehab so he then he stayed in hospital and and he went from I think it was 2016. He went to rehab and that was a massive turn in our relationship at that point because he became a nicer person from rehab. I'd say they work through a lot of stuff. He was only there three months and he in the, I moved house. I went right when he went to rehab. I I moved and I said. I'll tell you where, where I live as long as you go to rehab and you get sorted. And and if you can do that, then it'll be fine. But I, I wrote to him while he was in rehab. He wrote me a lot of letters while he was there. And I wrote to him and explained that I just couldn't do this anymore if he wasn't going to get, stop and get the help and accept the help, which the problem was there it was not just not enough. There wasn't enough help. So I moved house. He went there. He did become a nicer person. That was basically what I wanted him to be was nicer than he had been because he just blaming everybody else and blaming, like say, oh it's your fault that I've relapsed because you like because I'm stressed because you're going you're going away or you're doing something. (laughs) Um. So when he came out of rehab, he was put in a dry house for a bit, which um. It was a bit cut off. That was the only problem. He he didn't get the support when he came out. So they, the rehab centre wanted him to do another three months, but he said no because he wanted to be at home. And so that was a mistake. I think he should have done six months straight off. I don't think there should have been an option of three. And then he came out, went to the dry house. Um, he lived with a drug addict who uh, he had taught so he was a teacher of this boy, and um he found that quite difficult because then it was he just found stuff quite hard and um but the problem was that once he'd been to rehab um turning point didn't get in contact. they never phoned him they never nothing happened after that but he had made a friend um called Phil who was really dan was very close to phil, and um Phil took Dan. He told Dan to go to AA with him. and He said, AA is brilliant. You've got to come to AA. And he he was the one that also made him go to rehab. He said, you need to go to rehab because he'd done it before and it had helped him. And he'd started going to AA and so he started going as well. And that was the one thing that helped was having the support of other people that understood and other people that were in the same situation. So he got on really well with loads of them. Then he he started working again and um, at the YMCA instead. So he did, and then he was volunteering for a couple of other places, and um, that he was just doing a lot better. And then, and I obviously told him where I lived. <laughs> he came. He came to stay a bit, and then uh, lockdown. So lockdown happened, and um, but he was. Pract- like kind of living here, but the problem was that because of the perception everybody's views on alcohol, it was really hard for me to be honest about our relationship, really, so a lot of people thought we weren 't together, and I just didn't say anything because i didn 't want social services involved, and I just wanted so my closest friends knew everything, but nobody else knew anything and so it was very it was very difficult right because of the judgment of alcoholism and so I just didn't want to tell anybody then he relapsed a couple of times but each relapse was more like binge drinking in a way but he started to get really ill actually um, I think it was 2019, 18, 19, he had uh, osteoporosis and then he'd broken stuff quite easily broke his back and by just bending over doing gardening. He was trying to help my neighbours and he was um, going to their houses and helping them. None of them knew he was alcoholic. I never said anything. He was helping somebody and he bent over too long and his uh, one of the vertebrae broke and he was in agony. So then he used alcohol for the pain to stop it hurting. He'd asked for morphine and they, oh, no, you're not having morphine. And then he'd broken his arm, his shoulder, all sorts of stuff that was obviously agony. Amazon had arrived, obviously, so they started delivering it to the door, which he started ordering it and trying to hide it again, although he was more honest and open about everything. it was at times it was difficult, but i i then he just got so ill, and then he started fitting every single time he so he'd have a binge, drink, fit, and go to a hospital, so he'd be in and out of hospital for the next few years up and now one minute okay next minute not like and then he in lockdown he was the only one not drinking I think over which was a bit random with everybody when lockdown happened he was actually a very proactive like right we can sort this out I'm going to teach the children instead because I'm a teacher so I'll do that and he did he planned the lessons each day and and he was really good right and doing everything and then uh, the problem was I didn't really I didn't want alcohol in the house, but at that point because he, he wasn't drinking he was living with me, but I was struggling a bit and every now and then I'd, he'd end up like going and um, having a major binge drink and I was like what do I do with him I just <laughs> I didn't want to be around him so I ended up staying in a hotel or something or he'd end up staying in a hotel. Then when we started to come out of lockdown he started drinking again. We asking for help again, but it wasn't really getting anywhere. If all of the services were just like, well, he's not wanting this, so he we're not doing anything. And an AA was good, but but he had to get to the meetings, and cause, uh, most of the lockdown ones were all online, and he struggled a bit with that. Then, um, then he was two thousand and one. He, um, we went to the doctors and they said, you've got something wrong with the liver, but it's more like... Um, they said posit- the problem was I wasn't getting a clear answer from anyone. It was like, oh, have you got cirrhosis? Have you not? You might have cirrhosis, but I think your liver's okay. And every time they told him it was okay, he was like, oh, that's fine then. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm invincible. And I was like, how is this helping? It's not helping. And uh, he had um, pancreatitis and... Uh, he ended up one he ended up in kidney failure he was in the bathroom and he started being sick and there was blood everywhere and I was like what's happened there like and he was so ill and he wouldn't let he's like I don't want you to call an ambulance and I was said like, well I'm gonna call one <laughs> end up calling an ambulance and he by the time when they got here they said you're lucky you called now he wouldn't he it wouldn't make it another few hours and he wouldn't be here and um they got him in sorted him out And then um, came out, and then he was fine for a couple of weeks. Binge drank again, and then I just felt I just I'd kind of given up. I thought I'm not getting any help. I'm not getting anywhere. He's doing this. What I can't stop him. I can take him to AA. I can sort bits out. I was getting mixed messages from the hospital with different various appointments, and but he was getting iller, and I was like looking after him. So more and more, I was actually just helping him wash and dress and. And I thought, do I, because I could in- intercept what he's bought online, and feel like you can't have that. But now he's got to a point where he's going to fit if he doesn't have it. So, I was trying to measure out the alcohol for him to try and cut it down, and he wanted to do that. He was—he said to me, "I don't." He said, "I don't want to. I want to be here. I don't want to die. I want to live and see my children get older, and I want everything to be okay." But he. He just couldn't seem to do it. He couldn't seem to stop. He couldn't seem to get the help. He, and um, the doctors are just saying well, he was under them. I begged them to see him and they, oh, we can see him in maybe a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> I wasn't getting anywhere. And then I had to fight for every single thing because I wanted him to get the help from, because uh, at that point he couldn't work because he was really ill. So I said to him, can you have. Um, Uh, can he get some help can we get something so because i'm literally spending everything on him and (laughs) children and he was on job seekers allowance and they were saying you need to come into the job center and come and get a job basically and i was like there is absolutely no way that he can do that so i applied for dla for pip i think it was yeah um for him and they said they declined him um and then i had to i healed the whole lot and said if if he dies and you haven't given him this then i will take this further and then they did and they gave him the lowest amount possible and i thought it's all because he's alcoholic there's no diet like there's nothing i can do they're literally looking at his case going he's alcoholic so why should we help but like that's what it felt like and he said they don't want to help he was so upset and he was quite emotional at that point he then was struggling with mobility and i I couldn't get him up my stairs and I was like I can't get you upstairs can't get him in the bath can't get him out I need help and I was begging social care I was literally ringing rang up um, adult social care and said please can you help with him and they said oh well he's on he's on a waiting list so uh, then they finally ring me they ring him and speak to him and he sounds completely normal and so they're like oh no he sounds fine He doesn't need help. And I was like, so she's saying, can you come to my house and assess him, please? Because I'm getting nowhere. And then eventually they said, I had to literally say, I'm kicking him out of my house because I I can't have him here. And he's an alcoholic and he's around the children. I had to do everything to get him somewhere to live, to stay that wasn't upstairs. And they eventually gave him a disabled emergency accommodation which he we took the accommodation he stayed at mine and on that meant that he could get a house quickly which was a disabled accommodation which was just ground floor they didn't have the bath thing you couldn't go I had to lift him in and out the bath um so he moved into this this flat which was really the best thing could have happened at that point because it meant I could look I could go there look after him and come back, and and that's pretty much what I did. Then every day for two days a week, and no, every like two times a day, and then he, I was washing and dressing him. We were staying the night there. Children had the beds there, and we watched films. And the, but he just couldn't walk, and I was trying to say, what is what's going on? Why are we not getting any help? And um and then he started to. Uh, he started to turn yellow in uh it was i don't know july time last year he started turning yellow i said to the i rang up the um doctors and they said well we can see him in two weeks time so i was like i don't know if that's they said ring an ambulance if you need to i rang an ambulance because he got stuck in the bath and they came they pulled him out the bath and they said he's we can't take him in because he's got capacity and he's saying he doesn't want to go in and he was saying to me i've done this to myself i don't i don't want to take up any anyone else's space so i'm not going in because well, i don't deserve to have any treatment i don't deserve any of this uh, like i i've basically just let me die and leave me here which i couldn't do so I ended up I but I couldn't get him in, and I don't think he did have capacity at all at that point because he clearly had liver cirrhosis, which would then affect his brain, which would affect his decision making. Which so he should have just been taken in, but they didn't take him in. And the next day, I ended up ringing them again because he had a fit, and then he comes round. He said, "I'm not going in," so they didn't take him in again. He said, "I'll wait for that doctor's appointment." So I said, "Okay, all right, fine." So all that time waiting for that doctor's appointment and me trying to as hard as I could to keep him okay every time wondering whether he's going to be dead when I walk in the children are running ahead i going don't go into daddy's house yet wait a minute I'm just going to go and check daddy's okay before you go in so I was doing that and he was fitting quite a lot of the time and he was just getting just so so ill I couldn't wait for that appointment on the 16th of August I was like In the middle of all that, I went and got a puppy, which was a crazy idea. (laughs) And uh, it was my son's birthday, so I took him to see Dan. The children knew he was really ill, but he was saying strange things. But our daughter was angry with him rather than – and my son said, Daddy's going to die, isn't he? And I said, I don't know how long he's got left. I said, just enjoy the time you've got. And he did enjoy the time he had. He spoke to him and they – he Dan had bought loads of stuff off Amazon and uh, given it to Isaac for his birthday. And so his 12th birthday was fun. Isaac like saw him and enjoyed that time. And then I knew on the 16th, I knew when we went to the doctors that they would send him straight to hospital, but he wouldn't go before. So we got to the doctors on the 16th at 4.10. And I was like, right. The doctor took one look at him and said, need an ambulance. And I like and um, he said, uh, he, so he rang an ambulance. And the ambulance said, we will be four hours wait. So he said, the doctor's surgery shuts at six. So you'd be here after hours waiting. And he was in a wheelchair because I couldn't walk. He literally couldn't do anything. Uh, and then he cried and he said, I don't want to go to hospital. And I sat with him and I cried and I said, if you don't go in, I'm going to find you dead in your flat and all the children will find you. And I don't want that. So we just sat and cried together. And then and then I I said I'll drive him. And they said, okay. And he finally agreed for me to drive him in. So I said, I'll I'll, I'll just drive you. And I thought before he changed his mind, we need to go. <laughs> so I, I was in a crossroad. Do I go to Berry or do I go to Ipswich Hospital? What do I do in between the two? Go. And I chose Bury because we always went to Ipswich and it was like five minutes closer. <laughs> so I thought, I'll just go there. So we drove in silence near enough and I got to the car park and we had a disabled badge, but I didn't actually it wasn't hadn't didn't think about it, <laughs> didn't use it. Grabbed, ran, and got a wheelchair and pushed him up this massive hill to get into the hospital. And while I was pushing him, I thought this is going to be the last time I push him up here because he is that ill. I can't see him coming out. But I wheeled him up, and I had a letter from the doctor which said decompensated, de- yeah, decompensated liver cirrhosis, something like that. So I took that, and it was so busy. There were people outside A&E. There was tons of people waiting in the waiting room, and this nurse came over. I was in the queue, and she said, follow me, because he had turned a luminous yellow by that point. And she said, "Um, being that colour gets you fast-tracked. So Dan was like, we went straight into, it was uh, like an intensive care type thing. And it was silent because everyone in there was so ill, there was no sound. And all the computers were attached to, there was no monitors. They were all attached to the main um, computers. So there wasn't all the beeping. It was just strange. And I said to Dan, I will not leave you. I will stay with you like all night, all day. And I will just stay here. Uh, on the condition he goes in, <laughs> that was so he he was right fine, he was terrified. I think that was what it was so um and eventually they moved him onto the cardiac ward because his heart wasn 't quite right, and um he stayed on that ward for a week and um, then they said he he was improving, but he 'd got C diff, so they said we 're going to move him onto the gastro ward and put him in a side room so i was googling what that what c diff and what c diff and liver failure what's the c diff and kidney failure everything it wasn't a great outcome but some of it was okay really didn't make sense then um, they said to me his kidneys are improving and it's because he was on the catheter and that seemed to be okay so i thought oh that's he looks okay they were saying oh he'll he should be okay Um, I wasn't really getting any information out of anybody really I was going in he was he was on the commode and so he couldn't get up himself so I was helping him and then he was pressing the buzzer to get on like out of bed he couldn't he's swollen his feet had absolutely blown up like a bloom I was going what's wrong with his what's wrong with his feet and they just said oh that's normal that's just how that's like that's just the liver and it's fine um and then I was, this one nurse came in and he had, he said, you keep, I kept washing and dressing him. He was getting agitated and he said, I'm going to ring the buzzer because you're doing this all the time. I'm going to ring it and just get somebody else to come. So he rang it and this one, this nurse came in and said, what? Eventually after they answered his buzzer and he said, I, I just need some help. And she said, why can't you wipe your own bum? And he said, uh, I've been doing it for like 40 years. of course like. I wouldn't be asking you if I couldn't do it, if I could do it. And he said, go and get someone that knows what they're doing. And I just sat there in kind of shock, like, what is going on? And she went out the room. And it was almost like, because he's alcoholic, he was being treated a totally different way. He was in the side room, so they ignored him. and I was, And I was assuming that he was okay, because I thought if he wasn't, they'd be doing more and telling me as well but I wasn't really getting any information. He said to me on one of the days, I think it was a Saturday, he said, oh, um, why Why are you leaving? Why are you leaving me? Um, because I said, I've got to go back for the children. He said, why do you need to go? And I said, because of the children. He said, but you, I might die. I've, I, They told me that I might go on a ventilator, but they said I probably wouldn't. But I was just, and I hadn't had any of this information. I think he'd spoken to the doctors. The doctors had told him everything and not, passed it on to me and he couldn't pass it on to me because he didn't really know what he was saying so I I just went yeah right okay well <laughs> I was like but I've got to get the children if I didn't I just said fine I'll I've, I've got to go and it was really up and down that week in in that ward and then I said because I've been up there every day um and then he said it's bank holiday weekend coming up. And both of us went, oh, because every bank holiday weekend he ended up in hospital. He ended up with getting worse because there was no care as much, because there wasn't a start the staff weren't there and he wasn't a priority in that way. So he was like, Oh God, and I was like, Oh no, that's not good. And I said, But I will um I'll come in Sunday. And his mum came down, we went in on Sunday. And I didn't spend long enough with him because I was kind of rushing around after the children and the others, they want to leave. So I I just thought, oh, it's fine. He was tired. He said he just needed, he had an oxygen mask on and he said, oh, I asked for a bit of oxygen because I just felt a bit breathless. So they gave me some. Then I hadn't thought that would, I was like, okay. Didn't really question it when I should have done. So then that night at eight o'clock, but Sunday night, he rang me and said, "I don't. Uh, I'm not. I'm feeling really tired." He said, "I've been asleep the whole afternoon." He said, "I've just woken up, so I thought I'd ring you." And at that point, he'd sent some flowers through Moonpig and <laughs> on the doorstep with a card saying, "I know it's hard, but I love you." And I had a pot plant, and I, t- I said, "Thank you for all those things, and thank you for the blanket." He bought me a big fluffy blanket. He said, "I knew you'd think it was a blanket. It's a unicorn. There's different colours on it." I was. Like, okay (laughs) um he said i'll talk to you later i love you i said i I love you too i'll i'll speak to you later and i said i'll see you on tuesday i can't come monday because i've got to spend time with the children and he said that's that's fine i will definitely i'll see you then he said anyway i'll ring you later all right okay love you bye and then about three o'clock in the morning because he rang through the night because he didn't really know what time of day it was and I even Googled that. What What does that mean? Why is he ringing through the night and not knowing what time of day is? We all pointed to liver cirrhosis, and um, so he was getting confused with the day and night. And so he rang me at three in the morning, and I missed the call. And I tried to ring straight back and didn't get an answer. Um, and then, so uh, it was Monday, and I I was then trying to ring I. Hadn't heard from him, which was weird because he'd text me every single, probably every hour near enough and every day, and he'd ring me so much. And I'd say, as I said to them, I rang the hospital and said, I haven't heard from him, and that's really strange. And I spoke to a receptionist who then said, Well, let me check his notes. And she said, Oh, he's fine. He's washed, he's dressed, he's eaten food. He's absolutely fine. He's being taken good care of. If anything goes wrong, we'll ring you. Take a day off. He's done this to himself, so don't worry about it. And I was like, oh, I said, it's a bit more complicated than that. But I said, but I obviously, I've been up through the night because he rings through the night. And I don't know, I'm not sure what to do, but I'm definitely coming in Tuesday. But I said, do I need to come today? I think I, looking back, I did know something wasn't right because he would have contacted me and he didn't. And then, um, and I thought maybe his phone's away from him. Maybe he's just can't he can't answer it he can't do anything. then at um th- it was the next day i didn't sleep at all that night at literally not at all i think i was up, i was up all night and uh, i think i had an hour of sleep and then i had to drop our daughter off to a pony club and i just dropped her off and i was in the car and i was 10 minutes away from the hospital and they phoned me and said can you get here now um and come to critical care we we'll tell you what's happening when you get here so I had no idea what was going on I I said I'm 10 minutes away I'm coming now I rang my mum I cried and said I I don't know what's happened and she said I'm on my way and we just I ran straight in I said where's critical care and it was so surreal they pointed me in the direction and went in and they put me in this room and said "Um, somebody will come and talk to you in a minute and I sat in this waiting room waiting for the the doctor and the nurse came in and they said we've had to insubate him he deteriorated through the night Um, he couldn't breathe we gave him a bit of oxygen that got worse we're giving him his body a break we're insubating him now so you can go and see him in about 10 minutes but we just need to get him ready and then they explained what I'd see when I walked in and how it would be scary and um and then I said, okay, I just waited. And then they took me through and oh, he was in this room with, on this ventilator with the tubes and the every going in every bit of him. they said, we've had to go through into every part of him, basically. And um, he was on so many machines. I just, and he'd blown up completely, his stomach, everything was swollen up. And they said, he's going to be okay we're just giving his body a break it, that's all it is he's just we're trying to breathe for him to get him through this and they said his kidneys have already started to improve a bit they started to pr- improve over the day he'd got better he started getting better we stayed all day my mum and rang his mum, and they came and then they basically just said he should be all right I kind of went home thinking I don't know what's going to happen next and then the next day went in he was okay they said we're going to wake him up tomorrow um the third day I said right okay and then I went in and they said we tried to wake him up and he he basically bit through the breathing tube and we had to resuscitate him and there was he did that twice and and so they had to inspect him again because his body wasn't reacting the way it should and they said to me um, i said okay is that normal they said no that's only happened every t- like in the 20 years she'd worked there that's happened once she said it's not and he set back all his care right to the start and basically i think what they're trying to say is not coming back from this but they were saying it in a different way is that was yeah. <laughs> then uh then his kidney's starting to improve again and they said to me he his this needs to continue to improve for us to then try and take him off the ventilator again but we're not sure whether this will and another doctor came spoke to me he said I don't he said there's about 20 things that can go wrong here and if any one of them goes wrong he's not coming off that ventilator and he said I'll give you he said, basically, there's a 10% chance he'll be off that ventilator. There's a 5% chance he'll be back on a ward. And there's an even less percent chance of him leaving this hospital. So I took those chances and went, well, he's going to survive. Then. <laughs> I thought, oh, he'll be in that 10%. He'll be in that 5%. And get him. all I wanted them to do was like, get him down onto a ward so I could say goodbye and speak to him. Because they said, either way, he's going to palliative care after this. If whatever happens, if he makes it through this. And then they said, would he want to be like that? Because he's not going to be able to do anything. They said, we think he's brain damaged from the fit that he had on the last, when he bit through the tube. But I didn't hear that at the time. I was just like, yeah, okay, we're just going through this. We're going to get him out of this. And then uh, on the, I think it was the fourth day, fifth day, they said, um, I went in and the bag had gone red, his kidneys. And I said, "He's he's gone into kidney failure, hasn't he? And she, the nurse just nodded at me. And I said, Okay, so I kind of knew then it was that was it. And they said he's got shadowing on his lungs. I said, does that mean pneumonia? And they said he's got an infection, which sepsis. So I was like, basically everything that could go wrong went wrong. And They said there's no chart. He's not coming off this machine. He's pro- basically he's we've run a brain scan and there's nothing there really. We need to make the decision whether we turn the machine off and you. Uh yeah, so with your consent and everything, we go through it with you, we tell you if whatever happens then you have to just make well, kind of make that decision, but with them because they said it's it wouldn't be fair to keep him alive. So I said okay. And um so then they said, right, the next day. So I called his mum, his mum they came, they said we'll turn the machine off tomorrow morning in a very controlled environment and it'll be done. So he'll be peaceful. He'll, I was fine. And then um, I went home and told the children, we took them to a, his mum and stepdad were staying in a hotel. So we met up with them and this hospital had given us memory boxes and done prints and <laughs> a few things for the children. So we took them into the hotel where they were staying and they sat on the bed and they said, "We they're turning the machine off tomorrow for Daddy and these boxes are for you. And I spoke to them about it and told them that's what's happening. We kind of didn't really react that much. It's like, a, I don't think they could quite understand what was going on. And I said, um, so... i I don't know i don't remember where i stayed that night i think i was at my mum's for a little while with the children and then we went in the next day to turn the machine off and they took us in this room and said there's been a change of plan um so there's been a change of plan and you're he's an organ donor and so we were like right (laughs) And they said he signed it three times in hospital. In every ward he went in, he he signed up to the organ donation. Okay, can he donate anything? Is that actually possible? And they said he's got a healthy heart. Um, His kidneys in somebody else would work fine. Um, And then so he went through like six hours of paperwork signing over every organ. And they said this might not work. If it doesn't work, basically we tried, but... They said, we've got 24 hours to find a match for, the, for him. Um, and he has to die within a four-hour t- four time frame of switching the machine off. Uh, and yeah, if he can do those things, then he can donate, then it'll be fine. And then it's whether the others accept the transplant. So they said, you'll get a call within the next 24 hours. So I literally... I had my phone on. They said, could it could be six in the morning. It could be like any time through the night. It could be. So I had my phone on loud next to me and I didn't sleep. I was just dozing, I suppose. And then six o'clock in the morning, um, the phone rang on the Monday. And they uh, they said to me, we found three matches. I literally jumped out my skin when my phone rang. And I was I'd been driving. I'd been doing everything until that point. And I just I couldn't drive. I couldn't do anything. I literally had the phone in my hand. I was like, "Okay," and I just couldn't do anything. I ended up saying, I've, "I can't, I can't drive myself to the hospital this time. I can't do anything." So um, my friend came over and she drove me to the hospital, and um, we and yeah and his mum and stepdad they came as well from where they were and drove to the hospital. And they said, what music do you want to play? So we chose um, Amazed by You. And I said, he liked he liked all the London musicals and everything as well. We played a lot of the music to him. And they said, we'll walk down the corridor to this place in the corridor where the machine will be switched off. Um, and, and then he'll have to rush straight into theatre. So he won't get long to say goodbye at that point because we need to take his body straight through. So... We played the song, and um, we walked. It's, I it's called the last walk or something, where you walk down the corridor for the last time. So we walked down with the music playing, and all these people just stood still and watched us, and like with their heads down. It was so strange, and um, and then we got in the room, and and they said they they'd given him a they had to wake him up to do it kind of so they took away the sedation and everything so he was starting to wake up and when they they explained everything out of the way of him because they said he the last thing to go is hearing so they didn't want him to hear so they talked outside the room so then they they called it an operation instead of being the life support turned off so they said you're going so we'll take him for the operation and he he started panicking so he's he just kind of went Ugh, like he wasn't, he didn't have his eyes open or anything like that. But I put my hand on his forehead and he jumped. So I knew he could feel me. And I said, It's okay. I'm coming with you. I'm coming with you to have this operation, just having an operation. And then as long as you relax and you're calm, everything will be fine. And he relaxed, like completely just went, And then, but then um, we went into this room uh, where they removed, so they had the breathing tube down him. And so the breathing machine would breathe for him. It was going like breathing. And then every now and again he'd take his own breath where he'd be like, <laughs> like that. And so he was doing that, I suppose, trying to trying to breathe as well. So that was a bit that was hard to watch. But when we got down and they turned they basically gave him an end of life injection and they said it and I watched the monitor drop his heart rate dropped from it was like 90 something on the oxygen then it went down to like 50 and then dropped to 30 and then when it got to it was like 20 I think somebody tapped me on the arm and they said he's gone and I went but because it still said 20 on the thing but I, I turned around and it zeroed and it was like and I oh okay so that was just and he he literally took his last breath at the end of the song that they played it was and he just went it was so strange then we were rushed we rushed out the room his mum said we need to go because we've been told we have to get out the room and that was quite I wasn't really ready to leave the room but I knew they had to take him straight to theatre and so I literally we went down the corridor and uh and then so it was like I don't know 11 o'clock 10 and in the morning so it was all over by ten thirty on Tuesday 6 and I just went how did we go? I just couldn't get it. We sat in the visitor's room, like just sat in shock for a while. And then said, what do we do? We'll go to his flat. So we did that. Went to his flat and went in. And then I was like, well, now what? And um, I got a phone call later in the day saying that the heart operation had gone successfully and the heart was beating strongly and in this man that needed this heart operation, and his children who are like in their twenties, they are, they just want to let you know they're so grateful that you've saved their dad's life. And I was just like, so when we told the children that Dan had died, but he'd saved three other people, this there was two another lady who had one kidney, and another one had another, and then his eyes and everything had they let me know, and yeah, then we. Um then the rest was like a whirlwind of a year. I have to say, like literally, nonstop year.
0: Oh, my darling, honestly. Um, firstly, I want to say how brave you've been to share this today. And we both agreed when we met in Suffolk that the aim of this podcast is to hopefully help other people that are going through the same thing. Because I feel it's really spoken about. it's quite often spoken about the person that recovers and how great their life is after they stop drinking. But for the partner, it you know, hearing your story today, it's almost right from the beginning of your relationship. It's being there in your life and to end like that. And, you know, there is that saving grace at the end that um, his organs did help three other people to live, but it's what it leaves you with as well. Yeah, so honestly, I have so much respect for you to share this story, and my I've had goosebumps throughout the whole thing. Um, are you okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll
1: be all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was it's hard telling it again in a way because it brings it all up, but I do feel it needs to be told. And straight after he died, I when we were going through all the funeral process. I was like, right, I want it to be the best funeral it can possibly be. I want to make this into a celebration and I want to continue what he wanted. He wanted other people to be okay. He wanted to help other people get better. He would have, if he could have done, he would have helped people not drink. And he did try and do that. And we did lots of talks together. He, did, he talked at AA and I talked from Al-Anon point of view. From my point of view, he talked from his, and we were starting to do stuff together like that to help other people. But by the time he wanted to get better, it was too late in a way. It was, and then he said he didn't want to die and that unfortunately he had no choice in the end. But I just thought, I need other people to hear the story and I need to help other people. And that's what he wanted. He said he's written so many journals that now I'm going to try and write into a book. But they were all about why he drank, what happened, where he'd, like, just exactly how he got to where he was and why he couldn't stop drinking, why he chose alcohol. And also, I like the um, funeral directors when they said, Do you want to put an obituary in the paper, like, which would have just been a couple of lines for a few hundred pounds. I said, no, I want them to write a three page spread. So <laughs> I I made that happen. I was like, right, I'm gonna write this story and I'm not gonna just shut up and say nothing because actually because he was alcoholic. And we uh, then then I'd found a few I'd found Nakoa um about a month before he died, but it was too late by then. But Nokoa I thought that is the, a brilliant charity like helping children of alcoholics. I just thought that is I wish I'd known that existed because that might have helped him. So I wrote to them and I wrote, I sent them my story and they got in touch and asked if I would do some stuff with them. So I did. And then I, at the funeral, decided to raise the money for Nakoa rather than anything else, as it seemed more relevant than anything else. And then we went and met Callum Best. So the children got to talk to him, which was good because they – he could relate to them i suppose in a way and yeah. and they they were brilliant they absolutely like in those first few months they they were like, saying, we'll ring the helpline we never rang the helpline but i know it's there yeah. i know that they have that so that kind of thing we found all the help afterwards and that's the thing i wish i'd found it all before
0: yeah of course um, but that's why it's important to recall this so you know what would you say to people that are listening to this now and they're going through the same with a loved one that's struggling with alcohol what what advice could you give to them
1: i'd definitely say go onto facebook and join the the groups for wives of alcoholics or partners of alcoholics um all those groups were very helpful uh, i would say speak to people you trust definitely but like if you've got children go to Nacoa because they'll be able to help they'll actually be able to help the child and the other parent because they can talk and um and then friends I suppose well just like well, really good friends and definitely with Dan at the very end his really really good friends they were there at the end they like 100% supported me and they did they supported Dan, and one of them he had answered the phone at three in the morning to Dan, and those kind of things helped and It does seem to be with um with somebody that's addicted to alcohol, the more they 're isolated, the worse they get
0: yeah i I get that, and um you know the community on instagram, Facebook is immense, and there's always someone that can refer someone to some organisation, charity, or or an individual, you know, and there's the With You charity as well. They help partners of alcoholics. Um and there's Al-Anon. Um, and, you know, in general, listen to these podcasts. This is why it's important we've recorded this one today, because even, f- like, being heard, listened to, that by someone that, gets it as well is so important because for you it is incredibly isolating and because of the shame and stigma around the word alcoholic you're not likely to share that because you're protective and this is why we need to raise these conversations a lot more now so it's more normalized stops the eye rolling in the hospitals when it you know what he's done it to himself so why should we bother do you know what I mean and um raise conversations that um if you can get a doctor's appointment is like what happens when I do get a doctor's appointment, it you know, it's yeah. then, there needs to be more information and education out there.
1: Yeah, there does a lot more children. Don't say a lot. They will literally shut down. They won't talk about it because they don't want their parent to be, like, they don't want their parent to get in trouble and they don't. And that's where I think like with social care, it goes wrong because they don't, seem to see that and children will just shut down they won't say because they don't get there they don't want to be taken away from their mum or their dad and so they just they then it's isolating more
0: well the the thing then is is what do they do with that later on in their life you know and this is why we talk about trauma yeah you know that when you hold that in it always comes out later so this is why the is so important
1: I just wish social services knew about NACOA. That's another thing they should know about. They should know to be able to go, right, here's NACOA.
0: Yeah, signposting. There needs more signposting by these, you know, by the doctors. That, yeah. You know, try this, try that. In the meantime, try this.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's isolating for the family as a family. Like, it's literally, it isolates the alcoholic. And if you isolate the alcoholic, you you isolate the family with it. Yeah. We lost quite a few friends over the years because of Dan's behaviour. But also that meant that I was covering for him. And then I was trying, I was losing friends because they couldn't understand why I'd have stayed with him or, but yeah, it just needs talking about way more. It
0: does. And, and, you know, I'm hoping this podcast will help a lot of people. And that's why, you know, these conversations are so important. So, I want to thank you so much Lucy I mean that with all my heart that you've been incredibly brave um, covering this story today and I genuinely hope you are okay and um, there's a lot of people that are here for you as well and your family thank I hope you hope the kids are okay and no doubt in, in the future at some point we we'll meet again Yeah. Uh, and, and have another chat but in the meantime thank you so much for joining me today thank
1: you Thank you.
0: I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.